0: Good morning, and I'm going to dive in today into our look again at David, but uh, we're actually going to go back in time uh, for a couple of reasons. One of them being because of our Bible dedication to our children this morning. Um, I've decided to go back actually to 1 Samuel 25, um, which is when David is not yet King. And so, as we've said, um, you know, there was a quite a bit of time, probably a dozen years or so, between when David was anointed and when he actually became king. Uh, And so let me explain, before we kind of jump into the passage today, what's happening here in 1 Samuel 25. So David's running from King Saul at this time, uh, hiding and trying to not be killed. And so he's in the wilderness. And as he's in the wilderness, he's gathered around 600 guys who have decided to start following him. It's this kind of ragtag group of followers. And uh, the way that they make their living, uh, as someone has said, is a bit like being a neighborhood watch group. You know, in that time and place out in the wilderness, there were a lot of robbers, uh, uh, those who would try to steal uh, flocks or harm others. And so uh, this kind of ragtag group of David followers would uh, be a guard, if you would, to make sure that sheep or other flock would not be uh, stolen or taken. And so that's what they've been doing. And one of those people who they've been protecting, uh, he and his flock is a guy by the name of Nabal. Now, Nabal means fool. Right, And so we're kind of guessing that that's probably a nickname, probably not something that his parents gave him. That would be unfortunate. And so uh, a guy by the name of Nabal. And so uh, David says, you know what, it's sheep shearing time. And, And you know sheep shearing time, right? Right, yeah, it's a time of great celebration. It's like March Madness kind of, right? I mean, it's sheep shearing. It's like a harvest. You're excited. Uh, It's a time of great generosity. And so you have all these kind of wonderful things going on. And so David says to his men, I'd like for some of you to go to talk to Nabal uh, and to ask him, you know, to remind him maybe of what we've been doing for him and to see whether or not uh, he would be willing to give us some of his generosity. So that's exactly what he does. And so he tells them to go and... And we don't know for sure whether this is, you know, good and appropriate in that culture. Like, that makes sense. Of course, that's what they would do. Or uh, some people think that maybe this is more like a mafia kind of shakedown, right? Like, you've enjoyed safety. Do you want to keep being safe? That kind of thing. We don't know for sure. But uh, but we do know that one of Nabal's servants has said that, that, that David and his men have been like a wall. They have protected him. And so, well, I'm going to give... David, the benefit of the doubt here, and say, okay, well, you know, likely this was kind of the, the good and right thing. He'd been doing a good job. He hadn't taken any of the sheep. And, and so the men go. What we know for sure is that Nabal was not having any of it. In fact, Nabal so disliked it, he acted like he didn't even know David at all. Here's what he said: I'll quote him from earlier in the 25th chapter. He says, Who is David? Who was the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and the meat that I have butchered from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? In other words, no. This did not please David in the least, of course. He was livid. So he told his men to get their arms, and they were going to go take care of Nabal. Now, at the same time that this is happening, uh, the aforementioned servant of Nabal uh, heard what was going on, and he ran to go find Abigail. Abigail was the wife of Nabal, and she, we are told, was beautiful and clever, and so immediately she springs to action, and she starts getting stuff ready for uh, for David. She she gets some uh, some sheep and and grain and bread and wine and cakes of fig, which sounds disgusting. But she. Uh, it's, uh, everything's preference, so that's fine. And So they go, and they go ahead, right? A little bit like um, Jacob did for Esau, if you remember that story. So she sends them off to intercept David, and then she begins to follow or follow them in order to get him as well. And we're told that about the time she meets up with David, David, the narrator says, is kind of grumbling. You know how you get when you're really angry, and you're just kind of like, oh, I can't believe we ever helped that in a ball. Fool, that's a great name. And he's just kind of, you know, grumbling to himself, and all All of a sudden, then, Abigail confronts David, and that takes us to the scripture I want to read from verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and alighted from the donkey and fell before David on her face, bowing to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Upon me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. My lord, do not take seriously this ill-natured fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is His game is what you wanna say, is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, since the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from taking vengeance with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be like Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord, David, a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If anyone should rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living under the care of the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, David, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for having saved himself. And when the Lord had dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Blessed be your good sense. And blessed be you. Who have kept me today from blood guilt. And from avenging myself by my own hand. For as surely as the Lord the God of Israel lives. Who has restrained me from hurting you. Unless you had hurried and come to meet me. Truly by morning there would not have been left in a ball Such as one male. Then David received from her hand what she brought him. He said to her. Go up to your house in peace. See, I have heeded your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, let us pray. God, we pray that you would see us in the midst of this story, perhaps not one known by all of us, but that you would speak new truths to us, that we might be challenged and that we might be reminded who you are and who we are. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, the way we're going to look at this today is by just looking at the three kind of main people in this story. I want us to look at Nabal to look at David, and to look at Abigail. Let's start with Nabal. One of the fascinating things about Nabal is the way that he is introduced. Last week, we talked a little bit about this. It's somewhat similar when it comes to Mephibosheth. and This is the way that he's introduced. I didn't read it, so I'll read it to you now. He says this, there was a man in Mahan who, who pro, whose property was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. Walter Brueggemann points out that his possessions clearly preceded his. Person, Did you notice the way that the narrator, he doesn't give you the name. He talks about everything that he had, all that he owned, and then he got to his actual name. In other words, Nabal's identity was in what he owned. We see this again even actually in the way um, that Nabal talks about what he has. Now remember, for our ears, it may sound somewhat normal But in that time and place, this was a communal kind of understanding of what we owned or what we had. And this is which Nabal says this, Shall I take my bread and my water and the meat that I have butchered for my shearers? You see, for the listener of that who was listening to this story or was hearing this, their ears would have been jarred by all of the I and the my language. Now, we actually have something similar in the New Testament. You may be familiar with this in Luke 12. Remember, Jesus tells a parable about another fool, the foolish rich man. Do you remember that? And and he has all of the surplus food, and and so he's wondering what he should do with it. And, And so he wants to build barns, right? Which is okay, but... But do you remember how he described what he had? Here's how he describes it. What should I do for I have no place to store my crops? I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. As Ken Bailey Points out again in the New Testament, this also in that time would have been jarring for them to have heard about all these possessions and had no thought about the need for others to have any of them, no thought of taking part in a decision making process as would have been more customary there to say, okay, what should we do with this? The thing that we as Americans here in the 21st century, is that where we are? The 21st century need to be mindful of is this. That wealth, as we see with these two fools, wealth oftentimes, perhaps most naturally, begins to isolate us from community. That the more wealth that we have, the more likely we will be to just kind of naturally begin to isolate ourselves from others. It separates us. It can separate us. Its tendency often is to separate us from the community around us. Now, please hear me. That's not a necessity. Wealth can also help to bring community together and help community to flourish But if left of its own device, it will oftentimes isolate us. How do we see that? Well, you see it by the houses that we have. You know, when you have enough wealth, then you can move away from the masses, away from what is perhaps unsafe and dangerous, into places that are more protected. Wealth allows you to do that. When you have wealth, you get to go to trips that not everybody gets to go on, to places that most folks, in fact, are never able to go. When you have wealth, you're able to, as we think about March Madness, go to some of these basketball games, not just watch them on TV. And the more wealth you have, the more places you're gonna be able to go to places that are even higher up maybe, right? Like VIP or or down right there by the courtside, if you will, where there are fewer and fewer people do you notice that it begins wealth gives you the opportunity to isolate yourself from community now hear me before you get before we get defensive it does not have to but the natural river of wealth will almost always begin to separate you from the larger community My point in saying that is simply that we as Christians need to be aware of that and then say what do we do to swim upstream? How do we make sure that we don't just naturally go down those rivers of wealth? Well, uh, many years ago now, I've shared this once before, I was talking to David King, right? Which is interesting to talk about David King when you're talking about King David. Um, Eight o'clock didn't seem that interested in it either. I think it's interesting and He's a ZPCer. He's the director of, uh, of the Lake Institute on Faith and Giving, which just means this. He, he understands uh, philanthropy. He understands generosity. He understands wealthy people. done a lot of work. And he told me this. He said, he said, you know, Jerry, generous people know they are generous. I thought to myself, it took a PhD to figure that out, David. That's not that impressive. Generous people know they're generous. Well, of course they do, right? It seems a little bit arrogant. It also seems very obvious. Of course they do. But he, he then went on and said, no, no, here's what here's what you need to realize. In other words, if one is going to be generous, it takes a remarkable amount, as we've said before, of intentionality. You have to be intentional. Because if you are not, right, you notice this, if you are not intentional about that, as you go down and start swimming down these streams, you get around, you know, more people who have wealth. And it's just kind of, this is what you do, is kind of isolate yourself. And that's just kind of what happens. But if you want to kind of swim upstream, then we have to be intentional to say, how are we being generous? And what are we doing to make sure that we are building community and allowing our wealth to help community to flourish and not simply to just allow it to isolate us? One of the great things that I love about uh, about the work that we're doing in Ukraine, I don't know about you, but I oftentimes feel helpless when I hear about things going on, and I am so deeply appreciative of ZPC, who as a a church body and individuals within ZPC have given, I think, around nearly $50,000 to help with refugees, right? In other words, We are now a part of the community of what is going on there. We are the ones who are trying to help them to find food, even if we are not there. We are the ones who are helping in their shelter. We are trying to build community from those across the globe. Wealth has the great opportunity to build community, but we will have to be intentional. Otherwise, we will fall over the falls of foolishness like Nabal has done. And so we get a warning from the life of Nabal of what can happen. But now there's another person who warns us, gives us warning by the way he lives, and that of course is David. This is perhaps, as some have pointed out, the very first kind of dark side that we get to see of David. We'll see an even darker side perhaps next week or an equally as dark side next week as well. David. Now, David's an interesting guy, right? By and large, as we've said a lot, he's been very patient, right? Uh, the previous chapter, he could have killed King Saul. He could have taken out his vengeance, his anger on on Saul, but he did not do so. But there's something about the ball that sends him over the edge. All of a sudden, David is angry. He is fiercely angry. He is vengeful. He wants to get what he thinks is his. And what is so fascinating about this, and I want you to see, is how quickly he turns from being that which we would think would be loving and gentle to that all of a sudden of being angry and vengeful. In verse six, I think it is, when David tells his men, as I told you earlier, to go out and to see whether or not he can get something from Nabal, whether Nabal will be generous, here's how he tells them to speak to Nabal. You go up to Nabal and you say this, peace, shalom be to you. And peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. And as soon as David feels like he has been done wrong in that moment he goes from peace to strap up the swords guys we're going to go take care of business. Just like That. In a moment, he gets off track. In a moment, he becomes, goes from a person of peace to a person of war. All it takes is stoking his anger and his righteous self indignation. David, who has waited and waited at this moment, is willing to throw away everything. It seems perhaps even his kingdom in a moment of emotion and rage. Vengeance in David's eyes no longer belongs to God, but to David. And it is amazing how quickly we turn from being a people of peace to a people of war or anger. Have you noticed this ever that you've been in worship perhaps, and maybe it's been a good worship, and and maybe you're feeling the spirit of the Lord, and you're feeling good and wonderful, and it doesn't take very long, does it, for you to go out And have something upset you? Maybe it's a friend or a spouse or a child. And all of a sudden, you turn from this kind of place where we've been talking about the love of God and the peace of God. And all of a sudden, uh, we become tyrants. Have you ever had that experience? Good, just me. We've talked about this before. That sometimes I'll be out there and I'll be driving in a car, right, my car. Maybe I'll be listening to worship music or maybe even I'll be singing, right? I don't, I don't move my mouth too much because it's awkward when people see you. But, you know, have you ever done that where just like, it is well. I love that song. With my soul, it is well, it is well. Oh, you are not getting in front of me. Nobody gets in front of me like that. Have you ever had that? Where all of a sudden someone makes you angry and you become Absolutely, this tyrant, has anybody ever experienced that? In a moment, that changes. And one of the things I notice is that we as Christians do that. And we do it with some frequency, myself included. There are times when we feel like we as Christians perhaps, or our faith or our God is not being viewed well by the culture around us. Or sometimes it's the world and sometimes it's other Christians and they make us incredibly angry and we want to defend ourselves. We want to defend our God. And so we strap up our swords and we begin to take matters into our own hands. But the truth is, is this, it is really hard to be a witness to the Prince of Peace when you are telling them that God loves them and reaching for your sword at the exact same moment. And there are far too many of us, oftentimes myself included, who are more than happy to take out our verbal swords and to attack those who we think are attacking, to take vengeance ourselves. And there is no better time to do it, no more exciting time. Have you ever experienced this? I see it on social media a decent amount, but I see it in other places when you're getting really righteously revved up and you're like, I'm going to defend the faith and I'm going to defend anyone who says anything about Christians or I'm going to defend that kind of Christian or, or attack." that kind of Christian, whatever else it might be. When you're with a group of other people, you think about David, there he is, and he's going off to Nabal, and he's got 600 guys who have their swords as well, and David's grumbling, and you know they're grumbling as well. And they're like, oh, this Nabal. And the person next to you is saying, oh, this Nabal. And the person next to you is saying, oh, this Nabal. And you're in this vacuum of people who all think you are totally right, and it is good and right for us to attack this fool. This fool will never say anything else to hurt us. And we go, and we go, and it is such a good feeling to be righteously in indignant, isn't it? Anyone felt that before? Oh, I have. I tell you, it feels good. And that's exactly what David is doing. He's got this vengeance, this anger, this pain, this hurt, this the, the self-image accusation, whatever else it might be. He brings all of these things and he is racing toward the fool when all of a sudden he is confronted by beauty. the beauty comes in the form of Abigail. Abigail is beautiful, we are told, and she is clever. And she wedges herself in between the vengeance of David and the foolishness of Nabal. And everything slows down. As David looks at beautiful Abigail, she begins to explain to him a couple of things. First, have you seen Nabal? He is a fool. Why would you waste any time with this one who is full of folly? Then she says to David, look around, look. You see all these things I've brought you? Sheep, grain, wine. Cakes of fig. (laughs) Shouldn't you perhaps be grateful for that, in other words? And then, I want you to hear this. She says this. The Lord is doing something incredible through you, David. David, you're not fighting your battles. You're fighting the Lord's battles. David evil is not found in you you are going to rule over Israel David David you don't want to have this on your conscience in other words she the beauty of abigail is reminding david of who he is and the call that he has on his life. This risky, make no mistake, this risky and vulnerable and courageous act of Abigail is an act of absolute beauty. Beauty encountered anger. Beauty encountered vengeance. And because of that, David was woken up to who he is and was woken up to the beauty of the Lord and peace prevailed. Beauty. You know, I I realize that I've used a lot of Eugene Peterson uh, during this particular series, but he's a great conversation partner in this story. And when he looks at Abigail, Peterson says that Abigail, I picture her like an icon. And by that, what he means is that she is an image through which David experiences the beauty of the Lord. The beauty of the Lord streams through beautiful Abigail, her physical beauty, her intellectual beauty, the beauty of her courage, so much so that David slows down long enough to experience God. Again, Peterson says we get into these hurry, right, where we're hurry, hurry, and we're, we're angry, we're, whatever we are, full of vengeance, and, and, and we begin to go, and then he says all of a sudden we are confronted by beauty. Here's what he says more explicitly. And then we're stopped by something beautiful. Child. Friend. Stranger. Cloud. Song. Fragrance. Abigail. We find ourselves presented with something quite other than what we are feeling and doing and we suddenly realize that we are quite other than what we are feeling and doing. Hear this. I want you to see this. We find ourselves in something quite other than what we're feeling and doing. You ever been in that place when you're angry and you're full of vengeance and you're like, ah, and you're a different person. And what Peterson says is, then we see beauty of some sort. And we realize this is not who we are. And Peterson goes on to say this, wrapped up in ourselves, we had forgotten entirely about God. We now see ourselves as wrapped up in the bundle of God. With ball. I love this, reduced to nothing more than a footnote to the text of our life. Have you ever been so angry at somebody, or so angry at something, that it becomes this Goliath-like thing, right? You get so focused on it, that it becomes massive. And what Peterson says is this, that when you are encountered by beauty, and you you allow it to slow you down and you look at it and you listen to it, this thing that you thought was so big, this person you thought was so big, this nabal all of a sudden becomes a footnote in your life. Beauty has a remarkable amount of power to slow us down and to help us to remember who God is and who we are. Now there's the problem. That we as Protestants, and as Presbyterians more specifically, we don't necessarily always take beauty seriously. Uh, we tend to downplay beauty in some ways. It's not nearly a, a, a part of our theology as it oftentimes is. In fact, I even wrestled with whether to talk about this because I was like, this is not really something that we talk about. But there is great strength in beauty. The Orthodox church, the the Eastern churches oftentimes have a much uh, more focus on beauty. In fact, uh, for them, uh, they they see that the the power of beauty is there to slow us down. The power of beauty is there to, to give witness to God. It is a call to prayer. What they say is that beauty emanates from God. I love this. And then it draws others closer to him. We like to be close to beauty. Uh, We see this at times—the difference between us and the Eastern Church at um, um, times—and when our sanctuaries, right now, I'm going to tread very carefully here. I like our sanctuary, and I think that there is a beauty to our sanctuary. Okay, (laughs) but but we tend to be efficient. Right, We tend to be more practical and we think, okay, well, this is fine. But you know, if you spend an extra dollar on the sanctuary, that's a dollar that we can't spend going towards mission or going towards something else. Right? And I get that. I'm a Protestant pastor for a reason. I understand that. I resonate with that. But sometimes it does cause us to miss some things. Right? When we were in Israel, we went through a bunch of Orthodox churches and we saw this part of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, which is kind of Orthodox and Catholic and a lot of different things. Um, But, This image was this great reminder taken by a ZPCer of this. You see, here's what happens, at least it does for me. When I'm in a place like this and I'm just kind of walking, you know, when you see something like that, you don't just kind of be like, oh yeah, that's cool. No, you know what you do? You, You stop and you begin to look at it and you think, wow. Right? And you see the vividness and to be there and to see it, it's even more vivid. You see the the bright colors and and, and then you begin to see how tall it is and it gives you the sense of the vastness of God. And then if you're like me, you begin to think, hey, man, that is so tall. Who would have painted that. That is so scary to be that high. And and then you begin to think, who has the gifts and the talents? I am so bad at those things. To think about who spent all the time doing that. And there is this beauty, and it forces you to begin to slow down and to remember the beauty of the Almighty. Or there's beauty and art that we don't oftentimes perhaps talk about as much, right? Uh, this week, a, a, a ZPC staff member told me about uh, this podcast where there was an African American theologian, and she just described the first time that she saw a painting that had someone from Scripture that was painted with a little bit darker skin, and she said that for her she'd always intellectually known, yes, I belong to God, I'm a part of this story, a part of the family of God. But to see somebody who, who, who just looked more like her, that it allowed her to see even better how she was a part of that story. It reminded her again of who she was and that she was included in that story. Music of course has a way of doing this. We talk about this at cantatas that we go to or that we well, that we have here with all the different instruments but but not just Christian music, right? Even even not explicitly Christian music can do this. Can't it? I mean, I can remember uh, right before COVID broke out, uh, about two weeks before that, uh, Megan and I got to go to Ireland um, for a week to celebrate her 40th birthday. And, and that was great. And we went to the island of, or the, uh, uh, the city of uh, town of Dingle. Maybe you've been there on the West Coast. And uh, I, and there we were, we went into this pub and, and there was this really long booth and I can't go into all the details, but basically Megan and I sat down and then slowly uh, other uh, people started sitting down next to us and, and they all had these little cases. We didn't know what they were, but we thought, hey, maybe they're cakes of fig. And so, and so we, um, just kidding, and so uh, and then all of a sudden, they, and then they began to open them up, and they were accordions, you know, and they started, uh, and, and then they started playing. And the way that they did it, there was this kind of weird system. That even though they didn't all know each other, the person right to the left of Megan began to play, and everyone else joined in. And once that song was over, the the person next to her began to play, and and they were from like the age of like seven or eight. The person across from us, this little kid, had just started uh, uh, and had a penny whistle, I think. And then and, and then and then the next person would play, and it was this beautiful thing. And then this teenage boy walks in, right, and he has this percussion instrument and he kind of wedges his way in and he begins to play. And when it's his turn to lead, he has a song that he begins to sing. And oh my goodness. It is this amazing. I can't describe. It's this amazing Irish song and, and just his voice was beautiful. And for Megan and I, it was like this transcendent moment. I, you know, And, and we were just like, wow, there's so much more to this. This is what beauty does. N.T. Wright says, it points to something bigger. For Christians, we believe it points to the beauty of God. And we sat there with this community that was just kind of going as they went. And we heard the song and we just, our our hearts were lifted. I mean, we have never forgotten that we talk about it again and again. And it's just this beautiful moment. That in all honesty came to a crashing halt when they came around and it was my turn. (laughs) And they were like, all right, you know, I'm not going to try the Irish accent, but what are you going to do for us? And then we we left. So it was great though. It was beautiful (laughs) up until that moment. There are lots of things, right, that can give beauty. And I want to encourage our architects. I want to encourage our painters. I want to encourage our sculptors. I want to encourage all of them that we don't oftentimes do in the Protestant world to say, your beauty has a way of of causing us to stop and it looks to God. But again, though, as Peterson says, it's not just the arts that do that, though they certainly do. It is also, as we see in Abigail, a stranger or perhaps a friend or a child. And that's where I want to end this morning. You know, I've said this before. Um, all of us have jobs. There are parts about our jobs that we love, and parts there are times when we don't love our jobs. Amen? That happens to me, too, right? We've talked about that. Sometimes, you know, I'm just like, oh, it's just too much, or I get frustrated, or angry, or, or fearful, or anxious, you know, and I think, as I've said before, I just want to be a stone slinger, truck driver, and you know, I mean, that just looks awesome, and, and so I just, there's no fear for those guys, and so I just, that's what I want, and and so sometimes I feel like that overwhelm, like, ah, who am I? What am I, what am I doing? And, and I get home, you know, as we've said before, and if you, you've, you've, you know, we've talked about this, you get home, and my four little girls, you know, they come running up, and they scream out, you know this, right? We, they scream out, Daddy, and they, 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 they embrace me, and I am reminded in that moment, every single time, of the beauty of a child's love For their parent. Now I understand as they get older, that begins to look a little different, but at this point, there is is perhaps nothing as beautiful as the love that a child has for a parent to forgive, to forget, to come running. And every time I experience that beauty, I am reminded that I am loved. And I am reminded of the love and the beauty of the Almighty. And no matter what I may have been feeling, it doesn't take away everything else. But in that moment, I am reminded by the beauty of a child's love. That there is so much more than this footnote that I might be making into a Goliath. What I want us to remember this morning, what I want us to be is a people of beauty. There is enough ugliness and struggle in this world. I don't have to describe it. You know it. And sometimes I wonder, what can we do in the midst of all of that? We can do what Abigail has done. We can be an icon, if you will, a lens through which others can experience the beauty of the Lord. And so I encourage us to be a people of love and I encourage us to be a people who seek out beautiful things. And in so doing, might we be drawn again and again, even in the midst of our perhaps sometimes anger or vengeance, to be reminded of the beauty of the creator. May it be so. Amen.